Okay, how many of you got your star stickers coming in? Okay, how many of you still need one? Yeah, just raise your hands. The ushers are coming down the aisles now with this very vital little piece of paper. (laughs) Well, I have another question for you, so get those arms ready. How many of you grew up with a chore chart? Maybe you had an attendance chart somewhere. Maybe you're one of those people who got attendance awards, okay? Or maybe it was a homework chart, and you had checks or stars or stickers or something. How many of you had that? Yeah, okay, a bunch of us. Well, you know, tonight, the irony did strike me that I'm talking about gather, that is the weekly gathering, what the early church called the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, when they would connect together collectively. And I'm talking about it to the gathered, right? You guys are doing it. So I just had to start off with a star for everybody. (laughs) And I also wanted to start with that because if I could have, it might have been a cross. Could have been a cross in a tomb. It could have been a picture of Jesus, but none of those really satisfied, do they? Men's rendition of him. But the big thing is, you know, Jesus took care of it so we don't need to perform. We don't have to have perfect attendance. And that's not why we come. That's not why we gather because We're trying to attain his pleasure or his approval. And I just wanted to set everybody free. That's not what this is about. I'm not here to dump a load of guilt on you as we talk about gathering. But I am excited. It's the second G in what we call the 4G network, the evergreen way. How we take steps in our lives to grow in our faith and in our relationship with Jesus and in our relationship together. And so I get to talk about this gather. Well, it happened every week. She came into the auditorium. She would find a place somewhere where it wasn't too far up front, because that was a little uncomfortable for her. And she would place her Bible on a chair or her purse if she didn't have her Bible with her that day. Her husband wasn't with her because he's still on a journey of finding Christ, which he eventually did about 15 years later. But every Sunday, she'd come in the auditorium, find her seat, and save the one next to her. And then she'd watch the entry to the auditorium. And she'd be looking for that person that came in that appeared to be without anyone else with him. And she'd motion him over and say, would you like to sit with me? I've saved this seat for you. Now, my friend did that for more than 15 years. She understood what gathering was all about. It was about relationship. And tonight, we want to go back to the very beginning to talk about to what God originally intended for all of us, men, women, children, students. When he created Adam and Eve, his goal was fellowship. It was communion. It was relationship with us. And he put Adam in that garden, and they had a relationship. And we don't know how it all worked, you know, that he came down in the cool of the day and spoke with them and talked with them. We don't know how, what that looked like, really. That, it's almost unimaginable, isn't it, to have that kind of unbroken fellowship with God. Someday we'll have that. But that's what happened. And Sin messed that up, but God made a way for that to be restored through his son, Jesus Christ. But right in the opening pages, not just relationship with God did he design us for, but also relationship with each other. Why did he make Eve for Adam? Because it wasn't good for a man to be alone. 
There was this sense that every single one of us was built for being connected to God and connected to each other. And that's what gathering is all about. There's no solo acts. In fact, I want you to think with me just for a minute about the metaphors, just a few of them, that Jesus used for his body. He called it his body. I mean, excuse me, his church. He called it his body. He called us his children. And he called us his bride. He also, through Paul, calls us his household, which didn't refer to furnishings, by the way, back then. It referred to all the people, all the various people that would live in a household, including the servants and the slaves. That's what the church was called because of relationship. How much more intimate can you get than your body? How much more connected can we get than a body? Or our kids that we'd die for. We'd We'd do anything for them, wouldn't we? Or our bride. And the anticipation that there is and the oneness that there is in that relationship. And those are the metaphors that he chose to highlight and use for his church. So we gather for relationship and we gather to connect with the God who made us, each one of us. And also to connect with others, those who know God and those who are on their way to knowing God. Because I think everybody's on that journey. We're just at different places along the road. Now, as messy as it is and inconvenient as it is sometimes to have relationship and to live in community, It's still the only thing that God really ever wanted for us. So let's talk about that for a few minutes. And then at the end, we're going to ask ourselves a few questions. All the questions won't be for all of us, but there's something in there for all of us. So the word church that's used throughout the New Testament, it was translated in the Greek, ekklesia. And it came from this root word, kaleo, which meant to call out, to summons. And it meant the called out ones, an assembly, a grouping of the called out ones. Now, I don't know what you think of when you think of called out, but the first thing that came to my mind was in the fifth grade when I got called out to the principal's office after playing kissing tag at recess with a bunch of boys out in the field. Okay, now, when I went to the principal's office, I wasn't really sure which I was in the most trouble for. Was I getting in trouble for playing kissing tag or was I in trouble for being late? after recess, right? But I do want to tell you that after the little discussion with the principal, that, you know, kissing tag in fifth grade, it's all talk and no action. That's right. Big disappointment. Definitely not worth getting called out for. Now, when the audience would have heard this in the New Testament, you know, Greek and Roman culture, ecclesia was an everyday word, actually. It was a word that meant an assembly of people, a group of people that met, were meeting for any kind of reason. So it could have been a group of politicians, government ru- rulers or officials, like a civic meeting, like we might have a town hall meeting. It could have been a, a wild party. It could have been a game of kissing tag. It could have been any group of people meeting for any reason. That's just what they called it. Most often in their culture, it was a lot about politicians and government officials meeting. So this was not an unfamiliar word, but the way the New Testament writers and Jesus used it was unique because in every instance, ecclesia referred to the collective group of believers in God. 
either locally, a local expression of that, or globally, all those who professed faith in God together. And that's what it was referring to. So whichever, whether local or global, the word always meant the same thing. People. The church is people. And it's people who've decided to follow Jesus and to have a relationship with God. And when we go to talk about the weekend gathering, it's easy to think about the church as that weekend service. But we know that's not what the word meant Though it was inclusive of that, that's like a little subset of a great big idea that you and I and everybody who calls on the name of Jesus, everybody who claims him as Savior and Lord across this whole world are the expression of Jesus' church across planet Earth. That 24-7, you and I get the privilege to be the church to the people in our world. That means I get to be the conveyor of the good news that God loves them, that God has a way for them to be connected with him, that God has a way to clean up our messes. He's made a way for us to what? To have relationship with him and with each other. And that's an exciting assignment, to be the ecclesia, the called out ones. Called by who? Called by God himself. We've been summoned to someone so much greater than a principal. And a whole lot nicer, too, I might add. And not because we're in trouble, but because he loves us and wants to be with us. Well, I want to take a look with you. If you and I are the church, we're being the church 24-7, then how does this gathering thing really help us deepen our relationships with God and with each other? And how does a weekly meeting really help us And how does it fit in the gathering, in the whole of the church, the 24-7 being the church? How does it fit in God's big story, this one time a week gathering? And why does it matter if you and I participate in gathering anyway? Does it? So I want to just talk for a minute about the history of the church gathered across scripture. You know, it all starts in the beginning of our Bibles in Genesis, the fourth chapter. There's two brothers, Cain and Abel. They bring an offering to God. The one brought a veggie offering and the other one brought an animal offering. And I'm saying that right there, that's, that's anti-vegetarian, you know, <laughs> propaganda right there. I, I haven't used that with my man yet. But one brings the veggie offering and one brings the meat offering. And we know that that has been prescribed in some place, somewhere, somehow. God had gotten his expectations across. Because one offering was accepted, the meat offering, and the veggie offering was rejected. It was deemed unacceptable. And these two brothers that made the offerings, well, this put a rift between them because Cain was jealous of his brother Abel and the approval that he got for his offering. And what does God do at this first act of worship? He intervenes to punish, to say, bad boy. Mm -mm. He intervenes to restore relationship and to avert disaster in this brother's relationship with his brother. Because at the very first act of worship, what really mattered to God was not a sacrifice, but what was going on in the heart of the man who made it. 
He wanted relationship, and he wanted that man to have relationship with his brother, and he intervened. It was all about relationship. Now, if we go on from there, and we look at the patriarchs, that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and these early leaders of God's people, we look at that, and they didn't have scheduled meetings. They didn't have a scheduled gathering, a weekly Lord's Day, if you will. Instead, God intercepted their lives at various points, and he met with them at rocks, he met with them at trees, he met with them at altars. But all of these encounters that these men had with God had the same things in common. There was an experience of God's presence that was unique, that was experienceable, that was identifiable. They knew that God was there. They heard God say some things to them. He did it in different ways, but they all heard God speak. And their response to what God did and who he was, was to worship him. Relationship and exchange happened in each one of those. Now, it wasn't really until Moses that we find that God's people collected together. They had this, some kind of scheduled appointment, right? To meet together collectively. And this happened with the tent of meeting. You can read about it in Exodus 33. I'm going to ask you to to follow along as I read from Exodus 33 verses 7 through 10. Here's what he wrote. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away. Calling it the tent of meeting. And anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and they stood at the entrances to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke to Moses. And whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and they worshiped at the entrance of their tent. I want you to think for a minute about being in that story. Now, how convenient was that? There's this mass, prolonged camping trip going on with a couple million people. And that's when God chose to have them establish a regular worship time. A scheduled one, a tent of meeting with a designated place. Yeah, it is. I kind of try to imagine it must have been a lot Like one of those fire drills that you have. I don't know if you ever did. We did earthquake drills even in L.A. But these fire drills, you know, that happen at odd times. And if you ever have done one of those for your home, it's really kind of funny. Like, how are we all going to show up when we go outside? And I'm just imagining these guys. Some of them are wearing their, um, well, I'm not sure what they wore for pajamas. But, you know, they're wearing their pajama robes as they stand outside their tent. You know, I wonder what the women had in their hair. I don't know if they used rags or whatever, right? But... Where were they in their beauty treatments? Because they did do some of those, although I think the wilderness seriously put a crimp on their Mary Kay products. Okay, But I picture this, and it's right in the middle of this wilderness experience, and God says, I need to meet with you, and you need to meet together. And that's where he starts this collective experience. And the, the King James calls it the tabernacle of the congregation. Literally a place where God's people would meet with him and he with them. This whole relationship. The forms were different, right? We're not meeting in a tent today. But the same purpose was there. Relationship. Now, this persisted for a lot of years until we get to King Solomon, who got to build this amazing structure called the temple in Jerusalem, 
which was envisioned by his dad, King David, before him. He got to build this amazing building, but you know what? What was the purpose of this grand temple? You can read about its dedication, and Solomon talks about it. It was to worship and to meet with God. And he wanted even the building to speak of the awe-inspiring presence of God. And all sorts of people had different assignments in that temple to help them worship. It was all about relationship. But then the Israelites got thrown into captivity and their temple got destroyed. And what did they do? They had to get creative. They began to build these little structures, sometimes larger, throughout the villages and cities in their region called synagogues. These places to meet where they could worship God. And by the time Jesus arrived, these synagogues were a well and richly established tradition amongst those of the Jewish faith. And they met there on a regular basis. And Jesus took full advantage of the synagogues. It was his first stop in most of the towns that he went to. Why? Because he knew that at the synagogue, people gathered to connect with God and to connect with each other. And he wanted to connect with them. Now, whatever kind of place they were worshiping in, whether it was a tent, whether it was at a tree or a rock or an altar, or whether it was in a grand temple, or whether they ended up in this local little church tabernacle, it was always about the same thing, relationship. And tonight, we want to just take a look at the early church and see what we can learn about how gathering deepens our relationship with God and with each other. Because tonight, what he really wants to tell us, what he really wants to remind us is why we gather. Why it matters. It's all about that relationship with him and with each other. So let's read that together. In Acts 2, verses 42 through 47, it says this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe at the wonders and the signs performed by the apostles. And all the believers were together, and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, whenever I read this summary statement that Dr. Luke gave us in Acts, it is a summary statement. It's describing not a singular time that the church gathered, but what happened regularly as they were gathering these things. And whenever I read it, all these adjectives start bouncing around my head like a pinball machine. Wow, that was relational. That was attractional. That was a year, wild horses couldn't keep me from coming kind of time. That was miraculous. That was joyful. Those are some of the adjectives. And on top of that, I find myself saying, I want to be there. I wouldn't miss that for anything. But I want you to notice the pronouns and the adverbs that they used. They, themselves, everyone, all, together, those. There's no singular or solo in the mix. So why was their gathering so effective in deepening their relationships with God and with others. 
Because the early church had a shared commitment to relationships, to doing a few things consistently, to give their attention to those few things persistently and consistently. That's what it means to be devoted here, to give that consistent attention to just a few things. And this kind of focus is so powerful, isn't it? When we agree, notice that it didn't say that just the apostles were doing all this stuff. It didn't say there was one great person who stood up and made it all happen. They were all together. They were all participating. There's an amazing power in that because they agreed to do these four things together for the purpose of relationship. Now, you don't have to look any further than Chip Kelly and the Oregon Ducks to see a great example of the power of devotion. His little mantra, win the day. That's what devotion is all about. They decided, he decided, and he led this group of people together to collectively agree, this will be what we devote ourselves to. And the mantra was something like this. It was a philosophy. We won't look ahead too far, and we won't look behind. We'll look right in front of us at the next faceless opponent. And that's where our focus will stay. And every week, week after week, that's what we'll do. And it's called win the day. And when they come out, out to the field at Autzen Stadium in that great big entryway onto the stadium. What's above it? What do they reach up and tap their hand to? What's above the locker room door that they can reach up and tap? Win the day. It's their little reminder of what they've all agreed to. Well, I was on a team too. It was the University of Oregon swim team. My uh, freshman year in college, yep, that's me... Third one in from the uh, right as you're looking at it. There in the second row. Long hair. Yes, I kept long hair. Don't ask me why. 11 years of competitive swimming, and that's what I did. Um, Anyway, uh, this is my swim team, and, you know, we had one of these too. Now, look closely at that picture because you are never going to see it again, okay? (laughs) I pulled it deep out of the archives for you today. But, you know, we had a little motto that was swim to win and you go well of course duh isn't that what everybody in a race wants to do you you know you want to win the race but that's not what ours meant meant exactly oh yes it it was supposed to be an all-out effort but it was swim whatever you need to swim for the team to win and that meant that I was going to be willing to swim any stroke I was asked to Any race I was asked to. If that gave us the advantage with that particular team. We played against their weaknesses, right? But everyone on the team had to be in agreement. We're for the team. We swim to win. Not for me, but for the team. And what's E's sign above the door as you walk into the auditorium? What would we touch our hand to? Loving God and loving people. That's relationship, right? Both directions, vertical and horizontal. We tap our hands on that as we come in the door. The early church decided that they'd focused on doing these four things together, and they all agreed on them. They said, we're going to learn together, we're going to love together, we're going to share together, and we're going to pray together. We're going to be devoted to these four things because these things will move us forward in our relationship with God and with each other. So we want to look at those briefly. 
First one, learn together. They call it the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to it. The King James calls it doctrine. The word's dedicate. That was actually the title for our uh, Bible classes in our uh, ministries institute that was uh, part of our training as church planters for Jared and I in our early 20s. It was called dedicate. They used the Greek word uh, as the title for the class. But it simply means uh, to be taught God's word. And that's what they devoted themselves to. Now, we know that they also had, not all of God's word was written yet, right? But they had what Jesus had taught them that was going to become God's word that they also passed along there. But the big idea was, when we meet together, we're going to learn how to follow Jesus better, how to love him more, and how to love each other better. We're going to learn when we get together. And there's a term that Christian circles use that's called discipleship. Disciple, it means learner. And they decided that together they were going to be a group of learners and learners about God's word. Well, if learning God's word is one of the big deals in growing closer to Jesus, then I want to learn all I can. Call it the overachiever syndrome in me. But it's like, how could I learn more? And this past week, I wasn't even thinking about this message. I was just having my soap time with the Lord and I was reading in Isaiah and I was struck with his description and his comment on what God had done for him in giving him, wakening his ears to listen like one who is being instructed. Here's specifically how he said it. He said, God wakens me morning by morning. He wakens my ear to listen like one being instructed. And the first thing I just noticed out of that was that my ears can be asleep even when I'm awake. If God needed to waken this amazing prophet's ears to hear him sometime, I need that. I need that too. And I wanted that when I finished reading this and thinking about it. And then it says to listen as one being instructed. And that took me back to college. One of the girls in that picture, a good friend of mine, she had a four-year scholarship to swim for Stanford. She was a much better swimmer than I was. She was world class. I was just okay. I was a great, you know, fill-in-the-blanks kind of person for them. Really, you know, utility player, I would call myself. So she was an amazing swimmer. But... She described her freshman year. She chose to come to U of O after that to be closer to family. But her freshman year at Stanford, she would go into the auditorium. And we all know freshman classes, right? These are the required classes, so they're packed out. So there's this big auditorium. And the professor comes up to the lectern, and everything gets quiet. And it's true. It was back when there were no laptops. Computers filled whole rooms back then, okay? I'm ancient. It's true. So... We're there going old school. We're taking notes. And that's what was happening in this class. All the people had their pens ready, had their notebooks out. And the professor starts to teach. And nobody is whispering to each other, passing notes, anything like that. Talking about the party the night before. Everybody's listening. They're leaning forward. And oftentimes at the end of the lecture, the whole class of several hundred would erupt in spontaneous applause because of what they had learned. It's just the picture I had here. And I just prayed and I asked the Lord, I said, Lord, would you waken my ears to listen as one who's being instructed? And I I thought about it. You know, it doesn't say as one who's being, who's uh, supposed to be critiquing, as one who's being an editor, As one who's being an expert. 
And that's how I want to listen when we gather. And that's what these guys were committing to. Together, we're going to be learners of God's word. And there's a way to listen when we come together. It was an awesome time in God's word. I want to listen like one being instructed. So gathering was about learning together, but it was also about loving together. And the word they used here was fellowship. That wonderful word, koinonia. I love that word. It really means partnership, participating together in walking out our relationship with Jesus. It means that we're going to uphold each other. We're going to support each other. We're going to suffer together. We're going to rejoice together. We're going to party together. I really like that one. We're going to encourage one another. We're going to participate in each other's lives, whatever's happening for each other. You know, there's a lot of one another's in the Bible. You know, like, scrutinize one another, pressure one another, embarrass one another, judge one another, confess one another's sins. Not. I'm checking to see if you're listening here. Those aren't it. Those are the one another's you won't find in the Bible. You know, there's more than 50 of those one another's in the Bible. I want to just remind us of a few of them because for us to be a community that has a gathering time where we really experience God's presence in a powerful way, where we can describe the kind of time that the early church, it takes more than one of us coming prepared. It takes all of us coming prepared. And here's just a few of those one another's. Well, first of all, it says love one another a bunch of times, at least 12, maybe 15. Be at peace with one another. Honor one another. Prefer one another in love. Build up one another. Accept one another. Serve one another. Bear one another's burdens. Admonish one another. And the list goes on. But I want to wrap it with Hebrews 10 verses 23 through 25. I want to read this particular one another straight from the Bible. It says this. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near or approaching. So my question is How does this happen when you and I come here, like tonight? We know about the learning together, but how does it work out that we get to love one another? Two words. Mindful participation. Participation, there's that koinonia. Mindful participation. You and I get to support each other in all kinds of ways. You know, the weekly gathering for the early church was not recess in grade school. You know, everybody's favorite subject? Why? Because you get to check out, sit back, and enjoy yourself. Now, you're going to get to enjoy yourself, but it is not recess. It's not break time. It's not something to come in, sit back, and watch a show. Instead, in sports terms, it's practice. It's showing up at the pool every morning at 6 a.m. and again at 4 p.m. and practicing till 7 p.m. and coming home, having some dinner, then figuring out how to do your homework. It's the practice time. The meets aren't anything if you're not doing the practice. And it's our class time. I love it that God gave us the most like-minded group of people that he could give us to practice loving each other with. 
Because if I can't love you in an hour, an hour and a half, a couple hours a week, if I can't be demonstrating God's love, if I can't do some of those one another's, then I'm really not going to be successful out there in the marketplace, out there at my school, out there at my job, out there in my neighborhood. So we get to do that together. We get to love each other. We learn together, we love together, and we share together. Share together. They called it breaking bread. Breaking bread. So what did that refer to? You know, a lot of people just presume that that was referring to communion, but actually it wasn't necessarily. Communion could have been included with it, But the way the early church met, and for a hundred years after Jesus' death on the cross continued to do this, communion happened in the private context of a home usually. It wasn't until a hundred years after his death that communion became a regular part of a public time or public gathering like this. So the breaking of bread, here's how they did it. They'd get together, and it might be in the synagogue. It could be in the temple, in the courtyard where all kinds of people could be, right? It wasn't a restricted area. And, or it might be in some other kind of meeting place, like the Hall of Tyrannus in Ephesus that Paul spoke from. could be another public place. And they'd have a teaching time, and they'd connect with each other. And then they'd go to homes, and they'd break bread together. Not just a few. It was on purpose. Everybody went to somebody's home. And while they were there, they'd first of all break the bread, little bits of it off, and they'd talk about it representing the body of Jesus. And they'd all have some of that bread, and then they'd bring the casseroles out. That's right, it was potluck time, a common meal. And they'd all enjoy this common meal together, this shared meal. Not something just provided by one person, but all of them together bringing what they had, sharing what they had. And then when that meal was eaten, then they would take a cup of wine and they would share it amongst them and they'd talk about the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for their sins. And they'd all have some of that common cup. So in the big, they were doing the learning together and the loving together. And then they went into breaking bread together and they'd go into the homes of one another and sharing their resources with each other. Breaking bread helped them practice generosity and gratitude right from the start. Gratitude toward Jesus for what he'd done for them and what he'd provided for them and generosity toward one another as they shared what they had with each other. Now, our hospitality at the end of services, it is on purpose too, just like their breaking bread was. It's our little way to, in an atmosphere of joy and celebration, invite all of you to move out to the lobby and to take relationships one step further, wherever they're starting at, right? To go a little bit deeper. And so, at any given time, you can look across the lobby and you're going to see all kinds of things going on. You're going to see families standing together with other families and maybe chasing their kids around and they're munching on some stuff. They're talking about the week ahead. They might be talking about the potty training they've been working on or something else. Just the life that's happening. You might see some people gathered around a bistro table and they might even have a Bible out if they're in one of the little smaller cafe tables. And I'm not... um, I'm not sure that they're always talking about the weekend message, but they're talking about something that God put on their heart. They're talking about a scripture that meant a lot to them. They're talking about something that they're going through. You might look off to another area, maybe a corner off to the side a little bit, 
And you see somebody praying with somebody, just to have a hand on their shoulder. You look in through these glass doors, look back, and you see that somebody's come in and sat down in the back of the auditorium. I've had the privilege to do this a lot of times with people, just finding a quiet spot and praying for them. You might see somebody just hugging and crying and somebody holding them. Because that's a chance for us to share together. And hopefully, it's the launching pad to break bread in all kinds of ways out there in our homes and at restaurants and in stores and in other places that we find to share what we have with each other. Just a little snapshot. We learn together. We get to share together. And we get to pray together. We get to talk to God together. Doesn't it make sense that sharing conversation with God, praying for one another, would deepen our relationships together? Even if those prayers are filled with angst or worry or maybe you're mad right then. Now, it's not time to elbow anybody who's sitting next to you. Or maybe you're mad at God. It doesn't matter. Because talking to him together reminds all of us to turn to God and depend on him for every situation in our lives. And I don't know about you, but I need that kind of reminder sometimes. It's a no small feat to be dependent on Jesus in a culture that fosters the exact opposite. A culture that was shaped by a declaration of independence. A culture that's been shaped by the self-made man, by the triumph of the will, that if you work hard enough, that if you just read one more book, that if you keep going after that problem, you can succeed. You can have it all. You can live the American dream. So it's no small feat, really, to achieve an interdependence and a dependence on God together. We're learning together, and we're loving together, and we're sharing together, but we're also praying together, and that helps all of us become more dependent on Jesus. James 5, verses 13 through 16, says it this way. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call for the elders of the church. And they'll pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. And the Lord will raise them up. And if they've sinned, they'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. I love this quote from a writer. His name's David Hubbard. He said, the purest form of love is given with no expectation of return. Isn't that what Jesus did for us on the cross? And measured by this, he said, measured by this standard, earnest prayer for others is a magnificent form of love. Our praying together, whether it be out in the lobby, whether it be here in some corner or nook and cranny, whether it be down this children's ministry's hallway where our kids are amazing little prayer warriors together. That's a magnificent act of love. 
Have you ever prayed with somebody that you were upset with? I mean, that you had to pray with them? Maybe it happened right here while we gathered. Have you ever noticed it's hard to stay mad at them when you've prayed with them? Maybe you've had to pray with somebody you didn't know at all. I've done that on many occasions, usually in these gatherings. Somebody I really didn't know well. Was my relationship with them better after I prayed with them? Yeah. I knew a little piece of their story, whatever they chose to share with me in that moment. And they knew a little piece of mine because of how I responded to what they shared with me. It's amazing that we get to pray together. So we get to learn together, and we get to love together, and we get to share together, and we get to pray together. And that's what the early church was devoted to, and that's what we're devoted to. But you know, it's not the doing. It's all for the same thing. It's about relationship. I tap that wall, and I say, I want to love God, and I want to love people. And if I do these four things together with other people instead of living it out solo, that's going to happen in my life. So how does this work in Anne's life? How did it work for me to become a person who had a regular habit, like Hebrews talked about, of meeting together? Well, I just want to give you two pieces of helpful information that were shared with me very early in my walk with Jesus. One was I made the decision once. And then I asked God about every exception. So I've made a commitment to weekend fellowship from the time I got saved. And I had to make that decision. And I had to initiate because I had to get myself to church when I was 10 years old. That wasn't going to happen on somebody else's initiation. My mom would have wanted to, but wasn't always allowed to. I had to make that happen. I had to call friends. I had to ask people for rides. But this thing of making the decision once. You know, some people, every week, they're deciding what they're going to do. Did you know that that's a guaranteed way to fail at devotion? Because devotion is the opposite of that. It is to give consistent, focused attention to a few things, right? I've made a decision about one of my few things will be, and it's this gathering thing. I'm saying right now, I'm a very rich woman. My husband called me oh, early on in our relationship. He said, this is my little church lady. He'd sometimes say, this is my little church of Christ lady. I love church. I'm talking about, I love the 24-7 expression of it, and I love gathering with his church. Not because I feel like, okay, I'm racking them up. Ka-ching, ka-ching. Woo-hoo. It's chalking up. I've got the celestial scorecard going, and I am scoring big. That might appeal to the competitive nature of me, but that's not what motivates me, right? What motivates me is my love for my Jesus. So, I've been disappointed by people in church. Maybe you have. I've been disappointed by pastors or leaders. Maybe you have too. I know you have because you come here, right? And that's, you know, Jared and I, our team. Of course, we are going to let you down. I'm going to hurt people when I don't intend to. I'm not going to do some things that I should have done. But, you know, I made a decision a long time ago. I'm never going to let people drive a wedge between me and Jesus. And I know that to really love Jesus with all my heart and to stick with him the way I want to, I need you. You need me. 
That's what this gathering thing is all about. Together, we're going to help each other have a rich experience together. I'm the richest woman in the world because of you and him. That's why he wants us to gather. He's not a celestial killjoy trying to keep you from that golf tournament or whatever your favorite distraction is. It's all about relationship. So I'd like you to consider a few things with me. What about you? What's your story today? A few things to consider. The first question, what does your commitment to gathering say about your relationships with God and with others? What are you listening for when God's word is being taught, wherever you're at? Are you listening to be instructed? And how will you love others when we gather What are some of the one another's that you could more mindfully participate in when we come together on a weekly basis? And how will you approach the weekend gathering differently because of Jesus' encouragement to us tonight? Let's pray together.